I remember I was like terrified to flip the private to public button on GitHub. It turns out that like, if you just switch a repo to public on GitHub and you're like some tiny startup that no one's ever heard of, people don't find it. Like literally nothing happened until we went out, you know, got boots on the ground and like really started pushing and talking about it to draw attention to it. No one even discovered the repo on their own. We shouldn't have been worried about that. You know, the response we got seemed pretty positive. You know, the next step was like, okay, how do we build, you know, an infrastructure service for this and get it launched as quickly as possible? My name is Christine Spang, and I'm the founder and CTO at Nihilus. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Christine Spang created the Communications API so you can unlock the power of your comms data. All this and more on Code Story. According to Christine Spang, she is secretly Canadian, being born in Toronto. Early on in life, she moved to upstate New York and grew up there. She came from a family of engineers and entrepreneurs. After getting into an RPG game based on Lord of the Rings, she had to learn to code, run Linux, and fell in love with software. In high school, she was a band geek and was super into fantasy reading. These days, she tends to focus more on hobbies that get her out and moving in the world, specifically rock climbing and plants. Christine was working for a startup that ended up being sold to Oracle. At that point, she was considering what was next for her. And the timing was fortuitous, as her friend from MIT was starting up something around extracting information from email. This is the creation story of Nihilus. Nihilus is a software platform that makes it easy for developers to build apps that can connect to communications data and to help people drive action from the insights from that communications data. In its simplest form, this this can mean that uh, folks can use our APIs to bring communications data into other tools so that people don't have to context switch all the time to get things done. We also work with companies to do higher level things to essentially sort through and filter that communications data to uh, structure or to extract structured information from that communications data. For example, one of the channels that we connect to is email, and there's all sorts of uh, really useful and interesting things in email that you know other software might might want to take actions on. So we can extract real-time order information from uh, a mailbox and provide that in a nice, easy-to-consume form that other apps can use to essentially make their experience better by knowing what kinds of things people are buying or use it to do you know, real-time notifications about packages and things like that. Um, so that's just an example of you know, a use case where you know, we're able to take that communications data and help apps build things that make use of it. When you think about it at, at a high level, all sorts of work today is essentially knowledge work. People get things done by collaborating and communicating with other people. So Nihilus essentially helps connect the data that's generated through all of this communication to software. And software is a lever. Uh, software is a way to uh, make people more productive and um, we're kind of the 
translation layer that um, makes this communication data something that machines can can help us uh, action. So I went to university at MIT. One of the people that I met was uh, the original person that I started the company with, and essentially the idea sparked from his undergraduate thesis. He wanted to essentially build like a customized email client that layered on metadata about who you were talking to. He started trying to build this email client and just found that the basic technology, the basic sort of plumbing of getting access to that data and working with it ended up being way more difficult than he expected it to be. You know, this was 2012-ish, and uh, even then, kind of the expectations uh, of a developer was that you know most data you can access through some sort of REST API. That wasn't the case at all for email. You had to to use this old protocol called IMAP. The learning curve was really big. Just doing basic things was uh, really difficult. And the takeaway from this was that you know maybe the reason that you know despite the fact that email as a communications channel had even then been around for like 40 plus years, been growing a ton year over year, and had kind of become this like basic infrastructure of the internet. And maybe people weren't building apps that connected to that information and and helped make use of it because just the the barrier to development and uh, to entry was too high. So I, I guess I would say that you know the company idea started uh, with this problem around email, and then once we sort of got started building, uh, essentially like you know my friend graduated from from MIT, and I was working at this other startup at the time, and kind of went through like a whole like startup life cycle. And I, I joined the company when it was independent. Uh, you know, we grew the company for a while. The founders ended up selling the company to Oracle. Uh, honestly, I felt working at, you know, a huge uh, older company to be pretty constraining. You know, I started thinking about what I was going to do next. And the timing lined up really well to just dive into this wild idea with this friend of mine from MIT. You know, it was a natural transition point in my life. Just decided to, you know, throw in all the cards. I moved to, you know, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley is kind of like this hub of startups. You know, it was, it was a place that, you know, if I looked back from me as like a old lady on her deathbed, I would regret not having gone to check out a place that really seemed like the, the center of the software universe at the time. And so, you know, I packed up all my stuff into boxes and shipped it across the country and just sort of showed up at my friend's doorstep. He was already living here at the time and um, got, got started on this idea. Let's dive into the MVP then, that first version of the product. How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? I would say that the first few sort of iterations of ideas, you know, we, we probably ended up throwing those away completely. When we really got started and sort of coalesced around this idea of essentially building an API wrapper first around all of the different email providers so that you could build an app that quickly and easily could connect to a mailbox and do things with the data in that mailbox, no matter you know, what email provider that user was on, whether it was Google, whether it was Microsoft, whether it was Yahoo, all of those different mailbox providers use like a completely different protocol. And so um, we decided first, we are going to integrate with Google, the open source mailbox protocol that uh, is called IMAP. And at the time when we were getting started building, this was early 2014, 
Um, those actually used the same protocols as before Google launched a REST API for Gmail. And so we decided to build an integration with that protocol that exposed a nice modern REST semantics API for connecting to those mailbox. And then we would try to get developers out there to build apps that connected to that data and did things, um, essentially building productivity tools on top of mailboxes. You know, the question that you should always have when you're starting a company is, does anybody want what it is that I want to build? You know, you essentially want to optimize for discovering whether or not there's a market and demand for the thing that you're trying to build. Our strategy was, uh, you know, a couple different things. One is we scoped down kind of the MVP to be, we're just going to build out the IMAP protocol. And then what we chose to do was two things. One was that we launched that first integration as like a really minimal open source app. But it wasn't something that you could really run in production. And the way that we sort of got the word out and tried to get some feedback was that my friend had uh, essentially run this startup talk series at MIT. So he had some connections into you know startup media and press. Uh, we worked with that media to essentially put out some articles to get on Hacker News, things like that, to get an article in TechCrunch you know, about the APIs that we were building around email to expose our thesis to the world that people would build a lot more tools that connected to email if it were easier to work with and to see if you know, that made sense to other people. I remember I was like terrified to flip the private to public button on GitHub. And we did that before we put out any press or like posted it anywhere. And it turns out that like, if you just switch a repo to public on GitHub and you're like some tiny startup that no one's ever heard of, people don't find it. Like literally nothing happened after, our, after we made it public until we went out, you know, got boots on the ground and like really started pushing and talking about it to draw attention to it. No one even discovered the repo on their own. We should have been worried about that. You know, the response we got seemed pretty positive. People resonated with the idea. And so then, you know, the next step was like, okay, how do we build, you know, an infrastructure service for this and get it launched as quickly as possible? We chose to build things out using uh, Python as a programming language just to iterate super fast. You know, we're still in the stage where we need to figure out, uh, you know, what the product looked like. And, you know, there's more to getting product market fit than, you know, getting some early feedback of like, oh yeah, that's an interesting idea. I have that problem. Second step is like, okay, you need to build a product that can solve that problem and, you know, figure out the right form of that. And then there's a lot of other, you know, things you need to figure out along the way to having like a production ready product that people will pay for. And we tried to get to a launch point as quickly as possible, but we decided that in order to have that MVP, we needed to have support not only for Google and uh, sort of the open protocol IMAP mailboxes, but we also needed to have support from Microsoft. We were researching like the different protocols that you had to implement to, to do Microsoft. And we decided that to have maximum compatibility with all the different accounts out there, you know, there's lots of on-premise exchange servers. If we were gonna eventually move to you know, like more enterprise type of audiences, we need to have really broad support on that side. So we built out like a reverse engineered uh, protocol implementation of this protocol called Exchange Active Sync. This is a long time ago at this point, so I feel like I can freely say that like our V1 of that implementation did not really work at all. 
but we managed to launch the you know the early platform and luckily most folks would would test using Google accounts uh, first so we kind of got away with like saying you know we have support from Microsoft but um, it not really being very good you know at that point is like we had to get people to actually build uh, on the platform and use it in order to continue iterating you know, we were in the Bay Area. We, you know, tried to find startups and, and companies that could even come to our office and work on building to get people using the platform. And I think it was, in terms of how long it took, you know, we launched the open source version in like June of 2014. And then we launched the hosted platform in October. And then I think we didn't really get our first paying customer until about January. So... I would say it was about a year end-to-end from when we put down the first few lines of code to like a paying customer. Um, But obviously there were lots of little milestones uh, in between uh, that 12-month period. So you kind of touched on a few of these on the way, but I want to dive into them a little bit. Tell me about the decisions and trade-offs you had to make, whether it be around, you know, the protocols you had to support, uh, the Microsoft stuff that you had to support. Tell me about some of those decisions you had to make in the early days and how you coped with them. One of the biggest uh, challenges was, you know, the fact that like a REST style of API that a web developer expected had very different semantics. We didn't want to compromise on the API design. We wanted it to be as simple as possible. We wanted it to be responsive, you know, be something that was intuitive to use for like a modern web developer. We weren't really sure whether or not we could sort of like hot fetch the data translating from, you know, some API request that had, you know, a certain uh, expectation of what data it was going to return. You know, one thing that we had to decide was, are we going to proxy these API requests? And, you know, when someone connects to our API, you know, on the fly, make a call back out to, you know, Google or whoever on the back end and fetch the data and return it. Or should we make some sort of like asynchronous process that essentially created a cache of data on our end that we could then use to serve the API? You know, the advantage of doing this sort of proxy pattern was that it would be a lot cheaper to build. But the downside was that we might have been constrained in terms of like how powerful we could make the APIs and that also it would be a lot slower because, you know, there's more points of failure and there's more work that had to be done within a single API request in order to return that data. We decided to make an asynchronous process that actually cached the data on our platform that would then serve to the users. And this had a lot of implications down the line. I mean, I think it was like a fine decision in terms of like getting the MVP out the door. We cached the entire mailbox data instead of, you know, making it configurable or, you know, having some sort of complex fallback. This wasn't something that was like optimal in terms of like cost scaling or a lot of operational constraints, but the simplest possible way at the time to really focus on the API design. So that was like a pretty major decision around trade-offs that we made early on in the day that was pretty significant. You've got your MVP then. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think what I'm most interested in or kind of wrap that you know, question in a box is how you built your roadmap, how you decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. This was really an iterative process that 
came out of interacting with a lot of the early folks that were building on top of the platform. You know, a lot of folks in the early days, what they were trying to do is essentially bring email data into their application so that they could, you know, build tools on top of that with their, you know, automating outreach or, you know, surfacing up potential different actions that you might want to do depending on, you know, what kind of communication you got back. Uh, and doing that all without switching back and forth between your mailbox and, uh, you know, whatever app you were using to get things done. As a part of working through with these early folks who were building on the platform, we not only got to see what they were trying to accomplish today, but we could ask questions about what other problems that they were trying to solve. Pretty soon this surfaced up a lot of common patterns. You know, one big thing was that people wanted to to schedule meetings as well and to interact with calendars and to look at that data and bring that into their applications as well. And that was a, a kind of a natural iteration and expansion of the product. We essentially built out uh, a calendar and scheduling API and just launched it side by side alongside the email uh, integration. So um, went from just email to email and calendars. The kind of overarching vision in the early days was that we didn't want to just build out this infrastructure uh, and sell that. That was something that we focused on a lot more uh, after a few years. In the early days, we actually wanted to build our own sort of customized email client that, you know, essentially could be really extensible, could have, you know, all of these uh, extensions that would integrate other products into it. And so we built the API infrastructure as like, like a step one to getting there. There's kind of like multiple different things that were happening. One is that we were selling the infrastructure and we were getting feedback from the people that were building this infrastructure. Two is that we also hired a couple application engineers who were building internally stuff on top of the APIs, working towards this like full-fledged email client. And they ran into problems like, you know, how do we do contact, you know, autocomplete when you're, you know, composing an email? And so that's what led us to add a support for connecting to address books. Email calendars and contacts were kind of like the trifecta of sort of baseline data types that we integrate, integrated with for a number of years. And um, the internal email client that we were building ended up being a very bad product direction for us to go into. So uh, eventually we, we shut that down and, and sort of spun it off as an open source product and just really focused on the infrastructure, which you know, was not only growing and thriving, but just had some really core metrics that were really positive that made us feel really confident in just sort of betting the future of the business on it. So from there, in terms of like iterating on the product, you know, it's, it's again really goes back to that uh, interaction with customers and having a lot of conversations with um, folks that were using the product for different things. And you know, as a platform, the way that uh, we've come to think about you know, what do we build is one, what are like table stakes things that a lot of our customers are trying to build that we could make much easier for them to build and get to market more quickly by providing you know APIs that are specific to getting that thing done. Some early examples are doing link tracking in emails. You know, if they wanted to provide a great experience for those customers, they had to provide it. So. 
we tried to see the patterns uh, and get the feedback about what of those things could we offload from our customers' plates and put onto ours and just make it much easier for people to launch the things that they're trying to launch. And we found that a lot of people had to spend a lot of time building uh, like the front end part of, you know, say you're trying to embed a scheduling workflow into your app and, you know, you want to, you know, show a calendar view, um, you want to show slots that someone can like book a meeting instantly. All of that stuff is, you know, maybe it's not rocket science to build, but, you know, it's it takes time and it takes, you know, expensive engineers and we're the scheduling experts here. Can we actually just provide, you know, a pre-integrated component that people can customize and embed into their product that takes this work off their plate? And that's what led us to launch uh, our scheduling app. Today we have a whole bunch of different components that you can just drop into your application to embed a schedule view or an email composer. You know, none of these ideas really come from us, you know, meditating in a corner and trying to think of what what can we nihilists bestow upon the world as our gift to humanity. You know, it's it's, it's really about about asking people and, and observing what people are trying to do and, and asking ourselves how we can help them. Let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate they were the winning horses to join you? In the early days of starting the company, you know, the early team, me and my co-founder, we just went out and pitched literally every single one of our smartest friends on joining the company because... You know, we were pretty young. I was 24 when I started this company, and you know, joining like a three-person company is like seems like a pretty risky trade-off. You know, we found that having some sort of connection to the people was like pretty important for getting people to kind of take the leap, especially in the early days when we had only raised a little bit of money. We couldn't pay anywhere near market salaries. And I think one of the advantages of having gone through school at MIT was that, you know, we knew all these really sharp engineers and, you know, your 20s is also a really great time to do something that that may seem risky just because it seems like it would be fun. So that's really how we hired in the early days. Today, uh, I'm Super excited and proud of the fact that like literally every single person we hire is more experienced and better than, you know, myself and the early team at, you know, whatever it is that they're being hired to do. And that's a really amazing place to be. And just one of the most exciting things about scaling and, you know, seeing success, getting that product market fit, you know, getting great investors to back the company is that like we're going out and hiring a VP of sales, you know, chief marketing officer, things like that. And then you know, I get to learn from all of those people, you know, about how do we be world-class at X. So, you know, I think there's a lot of different things that we look for when we're hiring core components of our culture that I don't really, wouldn't really say that we look for culture fit, more of like, like, what is this person going to add to the company? You know, we have a really collaborative company and we win and lose as a team. I really want people to, to feel that way and to lead that way. We you know, think it's really important to, to have like a merit-based uh, advancement. People should succeed uh, according to their contribution, not because of whatever they look like or their gender or you know, race, things like that. And so we really look for values alignment there. You know, everyone we hire is a builder in some way. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're an engineer, you know, cranking out code. 
Operations is building out, you know, the infrastructure for running the company. Like we all need to be running off of the same data. We need to build, you know, lightweight process that that allows us to align and scale. People are building teams. So there's all sorts of building and creating and you know we look for folks that are really excited to do that cuz like it's not an easy thing to do to be at a startup and you know it can be stressful it can be chaotic and uh, it's really important to set expectations with folks uh, about what they're getting into when you do find the right person um they can move super fast and grow a lot i'm really proud of the fact that like for example We have I think 3 VPs at Nylas now today who joined early on in their careers in some cases like entry level roles and have like grown uh with the company by focusing on that impact and what they can do um that's something that's super exciting and meaningful for me So let's flip to scalability a little bit So, did you build this to scale efficiently from day 1 or have you been fighting this as you've grown? There's people out there that built to scale from day 1. I want to meet them because <laughs> I think for 99% of people that's not how it works. Building for scalability is hard and uh it takes a long time. You know, the the first version of our products absolutely would not handle the scale that we're at today and you know one rule of thumb that i use is that every 10x amount of traffic that you put on a product there's some part of it you're probably going to have to just completely replace and rewrite constraints change people might be using your product in a different way there might be different components that become the bottlenecks You know, for example, I think in the early days Slack chose to scale their product by sharding or splitting up the traffic by team. Uh and that worked great for a while, but eventually, you know, their business changed. They started selling to uh larger companies, more enterprise type businesses, which is a natural progression that often happens in SaaS businesses, but you know, they ended up having teams that didn't didn't fit on a single shard and they the performance was really bad for them. But I don't think that Slack did it wrong to have chosen that particular pattern for, you know, where their product was in the early days versus trying to predict way into the future what things might look like. A certain architecture should get you through, you know, at least a couple of years, hopefully. Um yeah, I guess if you're growing really fast, you might just be in this constant treadmill of rewriting things all over the time. I'm sure my team today kind of feels like it's just endless migrations, you know, replacing components and rewriting things, but yeah, I mean, we've we've been uh going through like a big platform transition over the past years, year or so and we're we're still in the middle of of upgrading a lot of the different systems. You have more resources to build things in different ways once you get a certain amount of traction and so I I don't want to build something that's going to last, you know, 5 years or 10 years at this company. We don't we don't know what the company's going to need then. We don't know what the customers are going to look like. We don't know how they're going to be using the product in that amount of time. Our goal is to get us through the next 5 to 10x of of traffic scale that will just get us to the point where we can take a look at things again and see what's changed and what we have to do differently now. So with the platform transformation you're going through right now, what sort of architecture is it towards? Is it microservice? Is it mini monoliths? Is it, you know, everybody's got their own flavor, right? But what what do you choose? So we started out building everything in Python and it started out 
kind of as a monolith, but eventually we wanted to have different services that were essentially、um, scaled separately. Things kind of evolved towards what I've heard jokingly called a distributed monolith over time, which is all of the downsides of distributed systems, but you know, sort of in the shape or pretending that it's still a monolith, and that you know we have had the same code repo. We sort of had a lot of shared code between different services, but different services were talking to the same databases and things like that. A big part of this platform transition has been to go through and、um, work on decoupling things into services that are more loosely coupled. You, know, you might call it a, a microservices architecture. Like, and I think people have a lot of different opinions on like what's the right sort of size and scope of different services. But the the main thing is like you know how do you separate the interactions of the different services?、Um, we've also been moving from Python as our primary language to、uh, GoLang. I don't think it was at all the wrong、uh, decision to start out using Python. You know, we may have never have made it to this point in time if we hadn't been able to iterate quickly and really take advantage of you know Python's huge array of developer libraries and things you can just drop in to connect to you know, different data types and APIs and things like that. You know, today we're operating at a scale where we just need、uh, a new level of performance and. We found that doing a ground-up rewrite for some of our core components using GoLang just really gave us a ton more performance and allowed us to make the, the product a lot cheaper. Well, Christine, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The thing that comes to mind、uh, most quickly is the team. The thing that makes the most difference over time, if you're thinking about building companies that really make an impact on the world, you know they have to have a sustained output and a sustained innovation over、uh, decades. And the foundation to that is really building a team and a culture that、uh, creates an environment where people can do their best work. I'm really proud of the fact that、uh, our executive team today is a mix of. Both people that we've brought in with uh, really great, uh, extensive experience building、uh, products, teams elsewhere, but also long-term Nihilus sort of OG folks who've been with the team for years at this point. In many cases, you know, they started as individual contributors on the team, and today are VPs running entire teams and you know parts of the company. That's the thing that motivates me to come to work every day. You know, having that connection to people that are doing great work, and、uh, it's the thing that will enable us to keep building great products over the over the course of the years to come. I hear most often that from from builders, from founders, that they are most proud of the team that they find the most rewarding thing is the culture that they've built, and I just. I, I never get tired of hearing it and relate to it personally. So let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. A kind of interesting story I wanted to share is that the original name of of this company was、uh, was not Nihilus. It was actually Inbox. Because、uh, in the beginning we were building, you know, an API that helped people access mail data, and we were also building an email client, which 
didn't end up working well as a business and we eventually stopped working on, but um, we chose this name Inbox because you know it was very focused on this sort of email data access and uh, accessing your mailbox and doing things with it. At a certain point in time, uh, Google released a new mobile app that was an email client called Inbox. And so we had to change the name of the company. You know, luckily, like this was only like two years in or something like that. So we had to go through you know, all of our code base and change the name everywhere, change the domain. And we, we implement an OAuth flow for folks that are connecting accounts to our platform to make their data available through the platform. And so it involves a series of redirects that kind of go uh, between uh, our site that's implementing the flow as well as someone's someone's domain. And so they have to redirect to our URL and then we re redirect back. And so we needed to make sure that you know the flow didn't break uh, as we were moving to the new new domain. We tested this all, you know, the first time around, and you know the first time we flipped the switch live, uh, of course we broke a bunch of different apps. We had to quickly go in there and patch that on the fly and work with these early customers to make sure that their apps were working properly. Two months later, we found that, that people couldn't really pronounce the name of the company with the spelling that we had chosen for Nihilus. It was actually Nihilus with an I at first. And so we decided on the fly to change uh, the spelling of Nihilus to sub the I for a Y. And so we had to do this whole thing over again. Uh, and I'm very proud to say that the second time around, we didn't break anything. The big lessons from this are one, like you're going to break things. You, know, you don't want your team to operate with a, a degree of fear of breaking things, especially early on in the days. You know, you're working with people who are building software themselves. They know, you know, mistakes happen. And the, the important things are one, do the right thing fix the problem as fast as you can, you know, get in front of customers who are having problems, make sure that you're really responsive and are owning the mistake and the fix all the way through and then learn from it. Uh, otherwise, you know, obviously you're not getting better over time. And uh, I really come back to thinking about that a lot in that, you know, companies can ossify over time if you overreact to making mistakes and uh, sort of drive out any sort of risk-taking and especially for engineering being able to take calculated risks to to move quickly is 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 oxygen to making change happen and it's obviously a, a delicate balance and the stakes grow larger as you have more people depending on the platform and but hopefully you also have more resources to uh, implement better testing systems that allow you to keep moving fast just want to make sure that the team owns it, solves it, and learns from it. At the end of the day, those are the big things that matter. So what does the future look like for Nihilus, the product, and for your team? I mean, at the highest level, you know, what Nihilus, the platform, enables is that you know, we connect to uh, data from different communication channels and we help people drive action from uh, the information in those communications. People all over the world, everywhere, talk to each other to get things done. You know, I really feel like we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of, you know, what kinds of uh, channels that we can connect to and what kinds of uh, actions that we can help drive from uh, all of the insights in this communication data. A big trend that um, obviously we're uh, really involved in is 
artificial intelligence and the ability to take unstructured text and both structure it, but also, you know, I think in the future, you know, the way that we're thinking about how do we drive value for people is, you know, we should be helping them build things that they're trying to build much more quickly than they could do it on their own. You know, we have sort of a pyramid of needs, like number one, connectivity to all these different channels and normalization across, you know, different email providers, different calendar providers, things like that. Um, nobody wants to have to go and read 5,000 different manuals in order to get, you know, whatever they're trying to do done. So, you know, we take care of that and, you know, provide great documentation and guides for people to build what they're trying to build layer on top of that is pattern matching amongst what people are trying to get done and thinking about what kinds of additional building blocks can we provide for them that help them get that done faster. Whether that's uh, an API that uh, abstracts away something that people are trying to do that makes it so that they only have to call one API versus calling you know five different ones in sequence. Sometimes that's front-end code that comes pre-integrated that they can customize and drop into their app. Maybe that's sample code dedicated to getting people off the ground with certain use cases that a lot of people are trying to build that um, would just help to have a scaffold to build off of. It's so much easier to take something and edit it than to start from the ground up and have to have a, have a blank page and, and put the first words on it. Those are kind of things that are happening today, um, as well as kind of data abstractions, things like advanced filtering to help people drill down into you know, what communication data is relevant to them. That's also code that people have to write on their, their end um, if they don't have a platform like Nihilus, and it can be quite complicated. There can be you know, a lot of infrastructure for doing that, especially in real time. So there's like these, you know, data abstractions uh, and building blocks as well. You know, the far future, I think we're going to see a lot more innovation in, in how people write code that will also apply to Nihilus. Like imagine in the future, you know, someone can write in prose a description of what they're trying to do and we can provide tools that will just generate, you know, the code for the workflow that they're trying to automate. You know, there's also kind of the UI-based, low-code, no-code type things where, you know, people provide tools that allow you to drag and drop and sort of uh, visually define the business logic for whatever you're trying to do. And, you know, I think the broad overall trend in the industry is that as software is powering more and more different things, more and more people need to be enabled with the leverage and empowerment that software provides and they need to be able to do that with both less specialized training but also you know even the people that write code every day for a living can become more effective by having tools that reduce the amount of work that they have to do and we see this already today with um, you know the engineer who uses github copilot to write a third of the code that they need to right for work and you know just uses that as a jumping off point. You know, we're going to see an order of magnitude uh, in terms of the development of that kind of stuff as we if, as we go through the next 5 years and beyond. Well, let's switch to you, Christine. Who influences the way that you work? You name a person that you look up to and why. A lot of people like talk about famous people in these kinds of questions, but all I can think of is like 
people that I have like direct relationships with that have had huge positive impacts on on me and that I learn from on a regular basis. So for example, like my co-founder Web uh, is a huge influence. We're very sort of very different people, very complementary in a lot of ways. He's a, a sales CEO and I'm a technical co-founder and um you know, we've raised a number of rounds of funding together at this point, and I first learned the the concept of a talk track from him. So you like try to iterate on it and 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 measure sort of you know how people are responding or what's engaging and what's not. You know, this sounds maybe really silly, but you know I was a huge nerd uh, growing up. I went to MIT, not known for people with amazing people skills. Like being able to see this live and and just learn by example uh, has been really meaningful for me. And relationships are one of the biggest drivers of human behavior. And so having a, a relationship that's supportive both ways, that you know we're both learning from each other, is uh, something that's hugely important uh, for me. I've also had a lot of coaches throughout the years of building this business. I think this is something that is underutilized when uh, it comes to doing stuff that's really hard. Uh, and entrepreneurship is really hard. You know, if you think about like professional athletes, like every player out on the field has, you know, a coach. They have, you know, personal trainers. Maybe they have nutritionist support. All these people that are going behind the scenes that are helping make that person successful. The same thing is true if you know you're in a high-pressure role where you need to grow really quickly, having professional support can be super helpful. So I've had, um, I think, three different management and executive coaches at this point. They've all, all been like hugely influential on learning more about myself and using that to like be more effective in my role because you need self-awareness. You need to know what energizes you, what doesn't, you know, how to show up your best. You know, there's a lot of skills around bringing so many people together to accomplish a bigger goal that are are really tough. You know, you see all sorts of wild human behavior um, when you're in a position of leadership in a fast-growing organization, and it's very confusing at times. So if you've like never been in that situation before, and so I think it's really important to have that support network and trusted folks that you know maybe it's coaches. There's also like a lot of advisors that had at the company that can give perspective and help you figure out the right thing to do. We talked about a mistake earlier, uh, but a little bit different spin. Maybe if, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? We're almost in year nine of Nihilus when I got this started. And I could say that if I were starting this company today, I would definitely do a lot of things really differently. I have a much larger network today than I did back then. We probably spent the first four years of the company in this kind of, you know, there's a phase of starting a company where you haven't found product market fit yet. And it's kind of like, like a random walk of experiments where you, know, you don't really know what's working and what's not working. And you just have to try a lot of things and try to figure out what's, what resonates. I think we did a really good job at scaling back and scaling down the basics of how do we get feedback 
as fast as possible on whether this idea is good, with trying to validate without having a full-fledged product by you know engaging with the developer community, doing press, things like that. And we did a good job at bringing folks in um, to you know help them build on the early product. But I do think that like we sort of got stuck uh, in this position of chasing something that really wasn't working for a long time. And definitely, if I had to do it again, I have a much better sense now as to like how to take a step back and gauge like is this working? Is this not working? Like when should we when should we bring in uh, management help. What are the things that I'm good at and what are the things that I'm not good at that I should just hire someone uh, to do uh, instead? Like for example, I found that I really don't thrive managing a really large team. I'm, I'm totally fine and cool managing a small team with like, you know, maybe up to like half a dozen folks. Just the way that my brain works is like I like to have a small group of people that I interact with a lot, but it's very challenging for me to work with just a huge amount of people on an everyday basis. So engaging, like going out and finding complementary people earlier on to, you know, people that are really excited about doing those things that are, are not my skill set or my strength. Um, it's definitely something that I would do differently uh, if I were doing this again. So last question, Christine. So you're getting on a plane. You're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. Maybe they're another 24-year-old just like you, and they can't wait to show you what they've built right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Showing up is half the battle. If you just refuse to quit, you're eventually going to figure out something that works. But you have to keep trying. That's great advice. I love it. Direct and solid. Well, Christine, thank you for being on the show today, and thank you for telling the creation story of Nihilus. Thank you. It's been great to be here. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.